Hello, everybody. My name is Christopher Thomas Plant. My name is Russ Farshtick. And this is The Resties, where the rest of the best discuss the best of the rest. And this week, we are talking about some of the very best. That's right. We're going back to the required reading list, an ongoing editorial experiment here at The Resties, in which we try to collect the 25 games that everyone should play from pac-man to modern day 1980 to 2020 these are not the best games they are not our favorite games this is most definitely not one of those just humongous list of like the 100 greatest games of all time you know you know how to use google you can find that these are the games that we feel if you want to have a fundamental appreciation of video games how they work what they mean culturally these are the ones that you should play and sort of how they evolved i would say so If you're looking for the original version of what, you know, GTA San Andreas or whatever GTA 5 is today, um, looking back and figuring that out is yeah. the source of these things. Think of it as a playable syllabus for like video games 101. Wow, that sounds very boring. Or how about, that? how about this? Maybe maybe the 25 games that a museum would build an exhibit around. Can Still sounds more boring? boring. Maybe like a playable roller coaster through a fun, fun house ride. A time machine through history. Yeah, just as long as people don't feel like they're learning anything, that would be ideal. Yeah, you're not going to learn jack shit today. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna learn about video games mostly about shooting people because we are talking about the years 2000 to 2004. For folks who are just hopping on board, we're doing this in five-year chunks. We've already done four of these. So I'm going to share with you the 14 games that we've picked so far of the 25. From 85 to 89, we picked Super Mario Brothers, The Legend of Zelda, and SimCity. 95 to 99, as you can see, we're not doing this just purely in chronological order. Super Mario 64, Pokemon Red and Blue, Final Fantasy VII, StarCraft. 2005 to 2009, Resident Evil 4, Wii Sports, Call of Duty, Modern Warfare, Demon Souls. In 2010 to 2014, Minecraft, Spelunky HD, and Hearthstone. We also picked some personal picks, which you can catch on those episodes. And if that list sounds like, hey, that seems kind of obvious, I assure you, it's not. Go back and listen to the episodes. (laughs) There are so many games that we had to cut that seem, quote, obvious. Uh, It it is a hell of an exercise to try to narrow things down to this. So without further ado, we're going to hop into uh, 2000-2004 in just a moment. Uh, And here's the one thing you should know. We're changing it up again, this time because there are now just so many games for us to work through. Fresh and I have narrowed down a list of 15 that we think are like real contenders. We'll talk about them on this episode and narrow it down to three. And that's that. That's a lot of table setting, and we did it. We did it, and we'll take a quick break and then jump right in. Okay, so Fresh, we're back. We're back. This is a learn. This whole project is kind of like an editorial learning exercise of how we want to. I don't know. Get a rough draft of this list, and then I think at the end we'll have twenty five, and we'll probably you know maybe polish it at that point. Yeah, there might but, be some. You know how they reevaluate tier lists at the very end. We might have to like shift some stuff, but I think by and large I'm pretty happy with what we have so far. Yeah, going back to it, I definitely feel that way. In terms of the episodes that we've created, it's been a journey because I think what we discovered in some of the most recent episodes is there are just too many video games. Yeah. And you fall into this trap of just kind of being dumbstruck by the awe of 
how many titles there are. So we, we, we put the dumbstruck part off tape to spare our listeners. And we, we did all of that behind the scenes to come up a list of 15 games. That would, that itself was quite difficult, but I feel really good about the 15 games we have. Do you want to, do you want to kind of work through this now in chronological order, starting with 2000 and working our way to 20 or 2004? Sure. And again, like if you were to go back and look at a game of the year list, there will be games that we don't talk about that were on those lists back then. Huge games. But, but again, we are we are really just looking at these formative games that we think sort of kicked off something in the games industry. So um, we're going to start with a game called Deus Ex, which was the original installment, I guess, of the Deus Ex franchise, which obviously has had a number of games since then. But um, really an, a very early iteration of what you would see in games like Bioshock or Dishonored, basically the immersive sim format, a lot of it was birthed within Deus Ex. And a lot of those team members went on to go form their own studios and make these exact games. Yeah, I, I think of this as being weirdly important ahead of the uh, new Zelda game coming out. You know, did you... Did you talk with Mahardy? Uh, Mike Mahardy's on, uh, he oversees our reviews team at Polygon, but he also did our preview for, for the new Zelda game. And a point that he made to me, like, kind of over and over was, oh my gosh, they took all of these ideas that used to be kind of reserved for complicated PC games, these, like, immersive sims where you feel like you can do anything with what's in the world, and they put it in a Nintendo game. And that because it's Nintendo and because it's open world and because it's Zelda, that's like a little invisible. Yeah. yeah, what you're doing is like you're given a problem. There is an enemy on a giant floating mountain. And the answer to solve it is, well, you have a world of thousands of tools like surprise me. Yeah. And that that was the pleasure of of these immersive sims at the time was that you could go about things in any variety of ways. You could go in gun blazing, but you could also hack your way in, or you could find different ways in day sex. There's a lot of, um, in the series, a lot of, a lot of body modification, right? Yeah. And, you're, you're installing augments and stuff like that to give yourself an edge. There's also like a lot of diplomacy stuff. So you're, you know, deciding what to say in a certain moment. Um, and then obviously you're deciding the basics, stealth or, you know, high combat or hacking or whatever. And it's very easy to see the like roots of games like Bioshock or games like Dishonored within Deus Ex and everything that was done there. You know, there are other examples, obviously, that do similar things. System Shock jumps to mind. But I think Deus Ex was really a big turning point for this format um, and a, a game that I think still is super interesting to play and, and think about. Yeah, I'm also just perpetually interested in games like this or media like this in The Matrix that is pre-9-11, but gets at a lot of, like, 9-11, post-9-11 anxiety. Yeah. Um, for, like, younger members of the audience, this period of, like, the 90s going into the early 2000s, like, the biggest fear was that your clock wasn't going to work on your PC when it switched midnight, right? Like, <laughs> like the level of anxiety in the 90s is, like, hard to even imagine today. And yet there were these sci-fi writers and creators who had a sense of, okay, behind all of this, you know, supposed happiness of, like, white middle-class America, there are a bunch of companies that are, like, vying for power, and it's just been concealed because of our relative comfort. And at any moment that that facade's going to fall and reveal itself. And 
Correct. Like that was that was the next twenty years. Yeah. Um. After this game came out, um, this game also had a briefcase that controlled the inventory, which was cool. <laughs> yeah, that's also true. <laughs> Speaking of damn the man, Tony Hawk Pro Skater Two. Yeah, is this like, is interesting. Obviously, this is a sequel. It does feel like uh, when Tony Hawk Pro Skater came out, uh, like it certainly was a big deal when the first one came out, but the second one was like the moment. Yeah. I, I mean, you probably attached more to it. You were a skater kid and, and stuff like that. I played it on Dreamcast, but I, I you know, I liked it. It was a great game. I but... lived and breathed this series yeah. as a like kid who could, you know, do an ollie, maybe did a kickflip once and nearly broke my ankle. <laughs> Does it count as a kickflip if you don't land it? I mean, so many people I've seen fail kickflips over the yeah. years. So, so that's like yeah. the default. So there we go. Yeah, Tony Hawk can't always do it. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think this game is really interesting, not in terms of where the Tony Hawk brand went, but what it represents for sequelitis and the entire Activision business model. Um, we've seen Activision, you know, like do the annual releases with Call of Duty and before that Guitar Hero. But this is where that the Activision business model like really finds itself. Of uh, We are going to milk this property dry. Uh, and for a moment, it is going to be the biggest thing in video games. It's like hard to even think back on how popular these games were. Yeah. I mean, they were humongous. They, they were the Call of Duty of the moment. Well, and they also didn't have competition, uh, yeah. you know, and then obviously with its growth, other skating games, skate franchises showed up. But at the time, there was really very little that was anything like it. And because of the like licensed music and the like, whole vibe of the thing it just totally blew up it's also wild to think that there was a competitive game like this that wasn't a traditional sport like you know soccer football and wasn't a shooter and like that's what really helped this game explode was you know local multiplayer in this game was a trip yeah um i don't i don't think it like will end up fitting on our list but i do think it's worth mentioning because to me this is the peak of tony hawk and if you've ever thought about like hey i really want to go back and try it definitely try the tony hawk pro skater one plus two remake it captures basically everything you could want from the original without a lot of the kind of like pains yeah that come with the original although i do find the originals like low poly aesthetic pretty charming yeah i wish that they had that option that was in the halo uh yeah release where you could like flip back and forth yeah um okay yeah so next up is Majora's Mask, and here's where I'm honest. This 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 like bunch, 2000 to 2004, hmm. is when I am in high school, okay. going into college, and I did not play video games like you were just too cool at that. No, point. I well let me be clear. I wasn't. I was in theater at this point. I was I was decidedly not cool. You were popping your jean jacket collar up and, and rolling <laughs> like a pack of cigarettes in your sleeve. That I, mean, kind of thing. It, I, I, I was in Greece apparently. Yeah. No, I, I was performing like all's well that ends well in, you know, Richard the Third, you know, thinking I was like <laughs> hot shit. Um I was in fact not hot shit. Uh so there are a few games here that are, I mean, like the most important games of all time that I have not played much of at all. Yeah. And Majora's Mask is one of them. Yeah. I mean, th- to give you more context, like I'm slightly older than Chris Plant. Uh, so I was in college when all these games came out, which is to say I played all of them. 
and have strong feelings about all of them. That's great. Uh, Majora's Mask is um, certainly, I would go out, and, uh, I would go out on a limb and say it's the weirdest Legend of Zelda game ever made. Um, obviously, it involves the total annihilation of the world that you're on, and it happens every three days, and there's a crazy, like, time tracking system to it, and, like, you're following, it's like a Groundhog Day type story, and... Uh, it came out very soon after just, a, I think it was a year and a half after Ocarina of Time came out and sort of, uh, it was sort of towards the end of the N64's life cycle. And it just did some totally wild, incredible things. I don't see a ton of Majora's Mask in later Zelda games or really many other games. There have been games that have played with time and schedule and stuff like that. Uh, I don't think it's like a formative game in that way. I do think it is a totally buck wild experience and definitely, definitely worth playing. I don't know that it's belongs on this list, but yeah, it's a sick, sick game. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And and I think like for our list, you know, a lot of them are games that inspire genres or things like that across the industry. I think there are a few uh, that have shown up on our list that are just, you know, massive cultural moments. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I don't think that's this, it, at least in, in, you know, in my experience, again, kind of outside of games at this point, Majora's Mask is this kind of weird anomaly. It might be the, both the best Zelda game for a lot of people and also like kind of separate from it at the same time. Yeah. Uh, which I is will, weird. I will talk about a t- cultural phenomenon, which is the next game and it's Counter-Strike. Okay. I was into this. Okay. Right. This on. is one of the few that, yes. Yeah, so. I Counter Strike for a year was was the thing for me. I guess. I guess my my connection with games here was like, oh, I had time for one thing, or I just had a friend who pushed one thing on me. But my my best friend from childhood um, had set up a LAN connection in his basement between like four computers that his, his both of his parents were teachers, and they got like scrapped computers from the computer lab. And we would play Counter-Strike. And I remember just blowing my mind playing together on a LAN connection. Um, it was such an upgrade over the GoldenEye experience. And for me, this is like when competitive shooters like really began. I think that's like, I don't think that's like a uh, surprising statement. I think most people agree with that. Yeah, it's certainly when they, I think, reached the mainstream, because at this point, obviously, people have, basically everyone had an internet connection, or at least a lot of people did that was fast enough to play games. I think even in the Quake era, like I didn't play a lot of online Quake. Yeah, like Quake 3 Arena and Unreal Tournament existed. Yeah, I play, I played a little bit of them, but like not a ton. And, but Counter-Strike was like fully accessible um, and uh, just like it dominated our college land like obsessively. It was so popular. And I think the, you know, talk about formative, the game effectively hasn't changed much i mean it's changed for like people that are hardcore fans of counter-strike obviously there are changes but the beat to beat core of it has not really changed over the years and that includes the fact that they just announced the quote sequel which when they announced that they were like okay so we're gonna make the smoke grenades ultra realistic and they are trailer rules they're very realistic but it, it is telling that like the stuff that they're obsessing over for changes isn't like we're going to completely re-envision how a Counter-Strike game is played. 
all they're doing is like basically just further refining something that has been refined into the floor. Y'all, if you have not seen the trailer for Counter-Strike 2, you need to Google it immediately. It's amazing. It's like if somebody was like, yeah, we're making soccer too. And people are like, please don't. Like, <laughs> soccer's in fact great, and we prefer that you don't. And they're like, hey, don't worry, we're not actually making soccer too. We're just making all the stadiums look a little nicer. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, oh, okay, ooh, that was that was close because I thought we were going to change soccer. Yeah. Um, no, it, it is such a tricky tricky needle of thread and i think they're doing like a really surprisingly good job of yeah. it um uh speaking of things that are coming back this uh this year man it is this is kind of jarring how much this is still just the present diablo 2 yeah i mean i think everyone that is now making like these sequels effectively grew up on these games mm-hmm. and are now like just like reliving those moments for themselves so yeah, Diablo 2 came out in 2000. Obviously, Diablo 4 comes out in June of this year. Um, and Diablo 2 was basically like what made Diablo the franchise that it is today. It's an enormous, hugely popular franchise. And while the first game is very good, it's also, if you've ever played it, like so raw and so rough and so like around the edges of what Diablo would become in terms of the like, uh loot centric like building a like a really like curated build around like specific skills and abilities and stats or whatever that all happened in diablo 2 diablo 2 was the first place that like you saw a currency come up where people were trading like specific items there was a stone of jordan which was like a basically just like an a ring that you could find in the game and people figured out okay this stone of jordan is worth like x amount of dollars in real world currency and people were like genuinely trading that as a currency mechanism um it was yeah a really the dawn of diablo as the franchise we know it and really the dawn of this uh action rpg genre or this loot hunting genre that has only grown from there yeah if if there was a place for this on this list and and kind of like the contribution to games it would weirdly be for like mobile games in my head. A lot of a lot of the kind of um, clicky gameplay loops and like very very clear um, power scaling and rewards feels to me like a model that would eventually lead to the dopamine style of mobile gaming and like kind of casual action gaming. Um, but I like I'm being honest. That's like a long walk for that argument i i i think it's like it's yeah it's the like protoplasm of of that sort of stuff i think it's more uh, felt in games like uh borderlands or uh yeah. even in like games like uh god of war the newer ones which emphasize the idea of like uh, armor sets and perks for armor sets and making a build using the loot that you find in the world like mm. that's where i see diablo's impact most even though I agree with you, like the the like clicky, uh, you know, kind of mindless aspects of this certainly manifest elsewhere. But but that is, I think, where it made the most impact. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Okay, next up, uh, Halo, the original one. Halo Combat Evolved. Combat Evolved. Microsoft says, we're going to get into the video game market. And how will we do it? We'll buy Apple's exclusive video game. Yeah, uh, I mean, their their dedicated studio, Bungie, uh, was 
basically purchased and released as uh, the game was released as an exclusive title. Yeah, yeah. That's forever one of those weird, like, um, I don't know, quantum leap moments of like, where would we have gone if it had gone the other way? And and Halo became this game that was going to launch on Apple laptops or whatever. But but totally different reality because I think it was going to be a world like a RTS at that point. Yeah, I've seen like, the early demo and it is. Uh, I mean, it was going to be a shooter, but like a weird third person kind of thing. Yeah. It's, so this is this is the the um I guess what is it online shooter experience coming to consoles though really I think that's Halo 2 when that right exactly that really so that's clicks, right very important to remember is Halo Combat Evolved when it launched did not have online play yeah um uh, that started with Halo 2 so you had to and right. I actually did this go to someone's house and set up like multiple uh Xboxes and do a land thing which was a blast like totally amazing and super duper fun uh, but it it was not the online moment. Yeah. Um, well, also, I, were you in college at this point or just? Yeah. Going? Okay. Uh, so, my first year of college was so, when Halo came out. Yeah. That that's where like all of this stuff gets kind of figured out because colleges have two things going for them. One, many dorms have LAN networks already in them, so you could like connect LAN wise inside of your dorm. Right. You could. Yeah. You could literally just like run some cable between yeah i don't know if that worked or... on xbox necessarily but yeah yeah that's true but or i mean or you could also literally just like run cable to down the hall to a room right sure like you should be yeah. able to create a land network living all that close together yeah and then the other thing is uh colleges at the time had some of the fastest internet pipes uh that were available to you so as, you know, Halo, and especially this is more of a Halo 2 thing, but as those games did go online, if you were in college and you had like, what was it called? T1 pipes? Yeah, t- the t- yeah T1 internet was basically Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you, were, you were, you know, just a god. You know, it you was were... the Fios of its day. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, it was probably like 100 meg or something. Who yeah. knows? Um, but... But yeah, I I feel like that was kind of this like weird perfect uh, storm or perfect like meeting of <laughs> things that would not seem to go together, which is really really strong internet that is largely meant for universities to transmit more important data, and a whole bunch of like young people being together bored when they're not studying and having access to like video game consoles that are like cheaper than their PCs. Yeah, the I would say the other big Halo Combat Evolved thing was uh, split-screen co-op, which if that wasn't one of the first, if not the first, split-screen co-op shooters that I've ever played, it's certainly up there and um, was like such a huge hit. Obviously not super relevant these days, especially as they like have stripped that from future games, including Halo Infinite. They didn't do a split-screen co-op version, but, um, you know, I think it, it made a real impact then. You know, looking at our overall list, we don't. Uh, do we have a shooter at the moment? Oh yeah, Modern War- Call of Duty: Modern Warfare. You know, uh, between this and Counter Strike, I think Counter Strike has a more more of an overall impact to some extent. Yeah, but- I feel like Modern Warfare really is the conclusion or uh, the, the transition point for console shooters into like the thing. Right? Yeah. Um, Halo definitely kicks it off, but similar to like, you know, Counter-Strike with PC before that you had, I mean, Unreal Tournament and Quake Champion or Quake, wait, 
Quake, Quake 3 Quake Arena. Quake 3 Arena. Yeah. I mean, these were not small games. They were huge. But they were kind of building towards something. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that's right. The other thing that I'd give some credit to Halo for, uh, though our next game does it much better, is hinting at the power of open worlds. Mm-hmm. There is the famous island stage in Halo C. What's the name of that island? Mm-hmm. Where you get to ride the warthog and you can go around the entire space. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know what yeah. you're talking about. But and, and that hinted at, you know, kind of what was to come. And a lot of, you know, Halo Infinite was supposed to deliver on that that promise from this one amazing stage. Yeah. Um, but the next game, Grand Theft Auto 3, I mean, is just ginormous. I would be very shocked if this does not make our, of the three games that we're picking, Grand Theft Auto 3 uh, was the first real full-on open world experience that I remember playing um, that had a, like the vibe of, oh, this is a living, breathing city and I can do whatever I want within that city. And they've only, Rockstar has only like heightened that and polished that since then. But the experience of playing this was unlike anything I had played before. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And I think there's practically no way it's not on the final list. The 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 like rub is Grand Theft Auto Four does it all so much better, but arguably it, they all do it. Like, well, 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 yeah, five does it better say, than four. Like it, they all do it better. The other difference is GTA Four was like, a, I mean, a cultural moment. <laughs> it was it was absolutely wild, especially being in New York when that game came out. Yeah, I think we've talked a little bit about this. The the just seeing how it sort of owns it was the city, everything. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if we're talking, it's not on this list rightly because I think GTA 3 is the like the moment for this franchise during this era. You know, I certainly think San Andreas and Vice City are like better games, unquestionably better games than GTA 3 is. Um, But you just cannot deny the evolution of open world games that came out of GTA 3 and how much it still is felt to this very day. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. And I I think it's not going to be a fun time to go back and play it for a I, lot of Here's what I'm going to say. It's not great. It's not great. But it's not miserable. Well, I've certainly played some of these older games that are like, oh, this is brutal. It, it's also like more enjoyable if you remember when it was made. Yeah. You really carry that with you. Like there are sometimes, you know, you go back and you watch, I don't know, Citizen Kane or whatever, like an old movie. And... Citizen Kane, while it sounds like homework, actually a fun movie. Because if you watch it, it's like, holy shit. Like, how are they pulling off these shots this long ago? Like, it just, watching it is like an actual trip. Because it does not mesh with your idea of how a movie should look from that time. And the same thing is going on here. If you play, like, a bunch of games from 2001, and then you play GTA, it, it's so, it's reaching so far beyond its grasp uh, that it, it's, feels like a miracle um i mean let's kind of roll that into what we're talking about right after this silent hill 2 which i don't think we have to spend a ton of time on but to give you an idea of what uh, it felt like to move around in a 3d space and how limited 3d spaces were 
I mean, totally different games. Again, that's like not entirely fair. Part of Silent Hills 2's point is that it is claustrophobic and all these yeah. things, right? But I mean, we're talking about a game coming out that was fully open world that you could run around, that we could take any vehicle you want in an era where like we were still seeing tank controls in small rooms. You know, like it's it's wild. And also the idea of like like story quality notwithstanding, like GTA 3 is like fully voiced has actual a- actors in it, like Joey Pants is in GTA 3, um, <laughs> and like has actual like cinematic tone that you see throughout all of Rockstar's stuff, even though it is rough and like, you know, obviously on early hardware. So yeah, no, it's, it's incredibly formative for really where games ended up going. Um, I mentioned Silent Hill 2. I don't, I don't think we're going to spend a whole lot of time on that one other than just acknowledging that it exists and is fundamental to the horror genre but i don't think either of us felt like oh it's likely to make the list i was too scared to play it a friend of mine on our dorm floor played it he had speakers that were bigger than me and i would walk in for 10 minutes watch him play in the dark and be like no fucking way so i'm aware of how good it is uh it and i'm but i don't my understanding is that it is a pinnacle in the horror genre but not like a total world changing event for the horror genre you know i think both of us should try to play this game before the end too scary year you don't think you don't think you can go back and do it i can't i can't even play resident evil the one that came before village resident evil 7 too scary i forgot about that okay i'm gonna try to play this game you play it and tell me i know pyramid heads in it that's true that is true that's in the movie um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to fit that in, and, and maybe that'll be a thing that we reconsider when we finalize the list. Yeah. Um, but back to, like, big open-world things. Morrowind. Actually, before we get into Morrowind, let's take a quick break. Okay. And then we'll come right back. Okay. So Morrowind is the next on our list. It came out in 2002. Um, it is the part of the Elder Scrolls franchise. Obviously, the follow-ups to that being Oblivion and then Skyrim, uh, Morrowind uh, was in that same model of open world, enormous RPG where you could essentially go anywhere you wanted, craft your character however you wanted, talk to various people. Um, it is very formative. It's you know also funny because I, I think in a previous episode included Oblivion as one of my fan picks because um, I you know I think. That was where uh, this franchise really became like the mo- like refined, approachable moment that it needed to be. Um, I didn't play a ton of Morrowind, full disclosure. I did play it recently, like within the last three or four years. I think I played it when it uh, was backwards compatible on Xbox. And that, it, you talk about games that are rough to go back to. Wow. <laughs> really brutal to go back to Morrowind. It is, it's ugly as hell. The controls are really stiff. Doesn't feel fun um, to play. I'm sure for people that are like connected to it, they probably have can overcome that stuff. But uh, I don't want to do that to people. It's it's tough. <laughs> there are cat people in this game. Well, in all of the Elder Scrolls games, yeah, they're called mm. Khajiit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Was that all that you had? To say? Uh, that's, that's all I gotta say. I I, I am. Not Elder Scrolls fluent, so I'm yeah. gonna have to trust you on on this one. Yeah, I mean they're they are amazing feats of technology, especially for the time. Um, but 
uh, I think the biggest aspects of this are like the open world aspects. And I think GTA 3 does all that stuff much better. Next up, we've got Metroid Prime, which we just did like an entire episode about. Yeah. And I, I now am awakened. Yeah. I definitely prefer Metroid in 3D space than 2D space. That's a discovery. Yeah. Um, but why should it be here beyond it being like just a really great game? So Metroid Prime, uh, a couple of the things that it does interestingly, and I, I again, I don't know if that means it should be included, is one, it totally reimagines a very well-known franchise in a completely different way while still staying incredibly true to the franchise and uh, uh, enhancing the experience, really, like making you feel actually in these environments rather than like the remove of a 2D platforming game. Um, I It's weird because that f- this format of game ha- is not very common. This is a first-person effectively metroidvania uh exploration game single player exploration game and there just aren't a ton of those these days so from a again formative standpoint i don't know that there's a lot of games that necessarily pull from metroid prime but man incredible level design and world building and music and everything it's a great great game but i agree with you i'm not sure that it is what we're looking for in this list yeah this to me is like one of those like oh it could be in a top 10 games of all time list and yet i think you could have played a lot of other games and learned more about gaming history through them than if even if you skipped this one yeah if if our list was 50 games overall i think undeniably it probably would make the cut but given that we're having to be so picky with so many great games, uh, I think it's going to have a tough time. Yeah, speaking of picky, next up, Burnout 3 Takedown. Man, this game's so fucking good. Uh, Bur- the Burnout franchise is essentially dead now. Uh, the studio out. is now working on Need for Speed games um, uh, in Criterion, but there were a couple years there where Burnout games were the best Racing games, bar none, without a doubt. And Burnout 3 Takedown is the peak of the Burnout franchise, in my opinion. It uh, has the best car crashes I've ever seen in a game. It has the best side mode of a racing game in its like crash mode, where you launched your car into these increasingly complicated pinball-style like environments to try to like rack up points and create these amazing combos. Um, Again, I don't know that it has a lot of uh, impact on the future of racing games. If anything, the legacy of burnout is, is one of disappointment for me (laughs) because, well, I mean, and not entirely in that Forza horizon exists as a series and Forza horizon has carried on the mantle of, if not entirely out what Criterion would eventually do with Need for Speed, Hot Pursuit, and open world racing games, and just arcade racing, right? Like having fun, using your cars in, in clever and unexpected ways. What's crushing about Burnout 3 <laughs> Takedown and the end of the Burnout series is they predicted the cultural moment around Fast and the Furious just a little too early. Yeah. 
And they would have been a perfect partner for the rise of Fast and the Furious. Because the, the whole magic of Fast and the Furious is, what if you take different genres of film and you replace human beings with cars? So, like, what if you do a heist movie, but instead of people, it's cars that do a heist? Or, like, an action movie or a, like, you know, like, international spy thriller. And you write the scenes as you would with people and literally put cars into it. And that is the pleasure of burnout is they just cars are a starting point. (laughs) They are not like it's not about it being like a real or being about racing. It's about like, what would you do with these objects in a fun and clever way? Yeah, I, I forever am bummed about that series. It is the opposite of Tony Hawk Pro Skater to me. And that Tony Hawk Pro Skater kept getting sequels, but it didn't really have any new ideas. And there wasn't a lot more room for it to go after a while. We're like burnout. I felt I feel like there's still plenty of room for that. Idea oh, one hundred percent in different ways. And yet it it just burned out. Oh, I don't I don't I don't know what happened there. I, I feel like EA just reprioritized how it was using those studio resources. Yeah, my interpretation, and this is a total guess, is that because of the nature of burnout, which was entirely focused around causing car crashes. It basically prevented EA from having uh, actual cars in those games because BMW or whomever didn't want to see their car get like fully like crunched into a cube, which is what you could do in Burnout 3. So they basically pivoted all their resources into what was arguably a bigger and more known franchise in Need for Speed. But because Need for Speed is not around crashing as much as it is racing, it just didn't allow for that level of like silly fun. Yeah, I mean, to this day, you still do not see that kind of damage in a card game. Yeah, what I will say is, if you're interested in Burnout, you've never played any of the Burnout games, really the only game that you can easily play these days is Burnout Paradise, which had an HD re-release a couple years back. It's excellent. Uh, the HD re-release runs great on every platform, including Switch, um, and... It's a great game. I, I don't think it's the best. I, I still think Burnout 3 is like the height of this franchise. But uh, Paradise is also really, really fucking good. I think, I wonder if Burnout 3 is on either PlayStation Now or on um, like the original Xbox game store. It might be. Might, might be. be. Yeah. I haven't looked back. Um, uh, games that are hard to find and play legally. Metal Gear Solid Snake Eater. Metal Gear Solid 3. Um, I know we have like a whole episode coming up about this one, probably soon ish, like early this summer, maybe. Yeah, we're, we'll we'll have to find a hole a hole for uh, this to go into. Yeah, um, yeah. I was it, so it's kind of a weird thing. So we've talked about all the Metal Gear Solid games so far uh, before Snake Eater, essentially, and Snake Eater was. The pinnacle for me, actually, to be clear, Subsistence, which was a re-release, was the pinnacle of the Metal Gear Solid games for me because it combined like playability with a actually comparable story, like an actually understandable story with uh, some really great stealth mechanics with some really great, like very, very clever boss fights. Um, But as with all kojima games seeing the uh i guess the dna in their in his games which are so weird and seeing that kind of carry through to other games is very rare 
because it's so hard for anyone to kind of match his level of insanity. Um, but fuck, man. Uh, MGS3, uh, specifically subsistence, is just so, so good. Yeah, it does two things that neither of the games, or any of the games, because they're the spinoffs too, had done at the time, which is made it very playable, especially the subsistence. And then um, the story is just like quite clever and rewarding. The ending in this game is fantastic. And I won't go into that. Maybe we'll talk about that on, on the episode. But dude, like, sticks a landing here yeah. very well. It should be noted that Subsistence came out in 2005. So technically not eligible. But I think even it, had it come out in 2004, I don't think it necessarily would apply in a, to our list. But excellent game. And we will talk more about it. Okay, here, here, now we're getting to two games that I feel like are also, how do they not end up on the list? Okay. World of Warcraft, a game I have never played, but have watched, I don't know, dozens, hundreds of hours of over the years. Have you really? Yeah, I mean, more like, oh, uh, in college, a friend was playing it. Yeah, sure. I don't know that it's the most watchable game. No, it would be like, it would be like, I would watch them, especially 2004, 2005, play while we like hung out in a dorm room. Yeah. Um, in Half-Life 2, which both of these are effectively, like, established their parent companies as unstoppable forces. Yeah, Half-Life um, 2 launched uh, with Steam, I want to say. Right, like that's... right. It is the game that gets people to use Steam. Um, and in by doing that, effectively establish a central, mostly singular marketplace for downloading PC games. Yeah. And at the time, it, that was like heresy. People were like, why would I download a game? I don't own it. I, w- I want to go buy a box. Yeah. I recently was like, I was looking through my Steam catalog and I was surprised because I didn't own Half Life to- 2, even though I knew that I bought Half Life 2. And it's because I bought Half Life 2 as a disc when it came out. I Not- can't believe that you didn't get it for free over the years in one of the sales. Like, I feel like they throw well, not that for thing free, but like the that's yeah. so. Just recently, I was like, "Oh, I don't own that." And then there was a sale for every Valve game ever for three dollars. I was like, "Okay, oh let's just do that." <laughs> uh, so I fixed that problem. But yeah, no, that was that was the first. Uh, just this year, I bought Half Life Two digitally for the first time. You you were a big WoW player, right? I yeah, I played a lot of WoW. It was my senior year of college. Oh, it's man. the only. It's not the only MMO I've ever played, but it's the only MMO that I got like deep deep into. And like hit max level and dipped into rating and had that whole experience. And a lot of that has to do with like just the approachability of it. It was not the first MMO. It was not the first MMO that like really struck it big, but it was the first, I guess, approachable MMO. It's I view it as sort of like the iPhone of MMOs, which is like normies could get into MMOs in a way because of World of Warcraft. Yeah, I I feel like there are like four periods of MMO. There's like pre um like uh ever ever oh my gosh ever quest like, ever pre ever quest yeah ever quest which is the beginning of like kind of like really clear visualized mmos and i guess ultima ultima online sure and then world of warcraft where we become like quote mainstream and then now we're you know i as someone who has like actively tried not to play mmos because i only have so much time and i want to focus on other types of games have ended up playing them because I play something like Fortnite, which yeah. I get is like technically not an MMO by these definitions, but 
come on. Like, yeah, I see more of the DNA in a game like Destiny. Mm-hmm. Like WoW's evolution is almost in a game like Destiny, where where yeah. you're doing a lot of the same stuff over and over for the gear grind or a loot drop or something like that. Um, and and obviously there are other like more traditional MMOs, Final Fantasy, what is it, fourteen, uh, that people love. So so those games one hundred percent exist. Um, it's I guess it's the question of like whether making something approachable and palatable to the mainstream is enough of a uh, kind of way to set set a game apart. Yeah. Oh man, do you think Epic would ever make like a adventure section of Fortnite, like an MMO? Uh, I mean, they're already adding. I mean, the tools allow for people to create that. People to kind of create that. I, I not, certainly nothing on the scale of like an enormous open world map like WoW had. But it wouldn't surprise me if if uh, they were to go down that road or someone creative were to go down that road and try to build something like that yeah yeah i think that's right and then half-life 2 i mean the the cinematic and you know adventure puzzly first person shooter plus helped launch steam um pretty yeah i mean it's really the steam thing I, even though yeah. i i think you're right like it is really one of the first games that played with physics in a realistic way in a clever like puzzle solving way um incredibly cinematic but i do think the like cinematic elements were more uh uh, they they felt more groundbreaking in the original half-life even though it was rough that's right um i think that was the moment where it was like oh wow you could actually do this in a shooter like have it feel like a movie where you slowly and quietly ride a uh a moving tram for 30 minutes yeah i the, the problem is i don't think we could include half-life 2 because of the steam thing because yeah. that's like outside it's truly yeah, outside I, the I, game i agree with you i am deeply worried that on a previous episode we were like eh, we don't need to include half-life we'll get half-life 2 i don't know man I but don't know. but i don't know and then here's the last one katamari damacy okay okay so here let me make my case sure this to me is the 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 first uh, writer on the apocalypse leading to indie games. I say that as a compliment. This was a game that I remember the very first time I saw it. I went into um, there was a dorm room like two or three floors up, which was like the dorm's drug dealer slash place to play Halo for free yeah. on land, uh, which a great business strategy, right? <laughs> Get people in the sure. door with free video <laughs> games and then see if they become customers. And whenever I would go up there to play Halo, they would like there'd always be like another two TVs playing various stuff. And it was always like God of War 2 or something, right? And then one day it becomes Katamari. And then a week later, it becomes Katamari on two other TVs. Yeah. And then by the end of like that week, every TV for like a solid month is just everyone playing Katamari. And it was absolutely bizarre to me because I up until this point thought. You know, I know a lot about video games. I, you know, I grew up on video games. I care about these things. And I had, like, not heard of this studio. I had never heard of this series. I had never seen a game that even looked like this. When I, like, tried to play it, I didn't, I wasn't automatically good at it like I was at every other video game. And it completely puzzled me. And I know it's not technically an indie game, but it... It certainly has the energy of an indie game. So and I'm... To, to make a game and distribute it at this point... Like, this is kind of the compromise that you made, right? Like, it was made with a very, very small team with a very artistic mindset. 
Um, I was I was the original one one of those like budget games in Japan where it was. Oh, like, I don't know. I yeah, I don't know. But I I think that this game has inspired just countless people to like think differently about what a video game can be. So when I think of a game that like is inspiring, does it direct? Are there like mini games that are Katamari likes out there? No. But I think if you speak to basically any millennial indie game dev about games that influenced them very early on and got them to think about video games differently, I think this would be on that list. I think that's probably true. <laughs> and yet. And yet. We are, I mean, that, we that is the last three, of the and 15 I'm not sure. that we've picked. And we've, I think there are three, unfortunately, that will happen. I could be wrong, but okay. I think there are three that are a stronger case for give inclusion. Me, give me your three. My three right now of the three that we would add are Counter-Strike, GTA 3, and... Fuck. World of Warcraft. Probably World of Warcraft. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. What, what else just, would you put there? I mean, I was looking at like Deus Ex would be another one, and maybe Diablo 2. But <sighs> Yeah, I think, I think Counter-Strike... I think you're right. Counter-Strike, GTA 3, and WoW are just so, so yeah. important. So important. Um, it's, it's hard to deny those. But on the bright side, there is room for fan picks, or I guess our picks, personal picks, as, you were, as it were. And certainly we can share some love for Katamari Damacy that way. Yeah, I'm, I'm adding Katamari for my fan pick. And then are you going to take, uh, are you going to take Deus Ex? Or are you going to take, uh, Thief 2? <laughs> Thief 2 is great. Great game. Uh, no, I, I, yeah, I would say Deus Ex is probably the one that I would pick as my fan I think this is, I think this is good. I think we're making good progress. This feels good to me. That, and, that... and again, like, people will, I don't know, man, scrub back. How do you not include Halo? How do you not include whatever? It's tough keeping to a list of 25, man. You have to really go deep to the bone. Yeah, I, I mean, and like I said, this is all building towards the episode where we actually do this. I think that I, I think, you know, sometimes I, I've had seen some listener feedback where it's like, oh, you know, the, the process is changing or or like, uh, how how is this official or whatever? One, it's not official. It's, it's just two friends trying to come up with a list. Yeah. But but two this is honestly like how editorial often works is like you keep working the process until you find what what you like you get a rough draft and then you can like clean it all up so i'm i'm really looking forward to treating whatever the final episode of this series is as kind of like uh our our end of the year episodes right where it's like a really big episode where we review all of this and yeah i think there are going to be some things that get shuffled in and out of it um and it, I think it'll just be fun to like once we do ha- get you know the rough draft ready for us to go back and play a lot of those games um, and get some you know some feedback. So I feel good. I think we're good. Me too. I think well, we're great. Is that it? Did we do it? Yeah, we did it. We did it again. We did it again, baby. Thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of the Resties required reading list 2000 to 2004 if you want to know more about the required reading list you can check it out on twitter i'll make sure to drop the list that has all of the games that we've talked about uh and until next time 
This is the Resties, where the rest of the best discuss the best of the rest. I'm Chris Plant. He is Russ Frustick. Resties. Resties.